Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. I've been away for the last two Sundays, but for the last few months we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We kind of left off with a cliffhanger last time. We didn't get quite to the end of chapter 6, so this morning we'll be looking at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Please give your attention to God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Have you ever had someone in casual conversation ask you, what religion are you? And if you respond to that question by saying, I'm a Christian, They say, no, no, that's not what I mean. Are you Presbyterian or are you Baptist or are you Methodist? Obviously, there's a semantics problem there. And I'm often even struggling, even if they clarify that, that they're not really talking about what religion, in a broad sense of the word, they're talking about. They're talking about what division among that religion are you a part of. I often even then struggle to say, because I don't want to just say I'm Presbyterian because... That doesn't very well define what I believe either. So I find myself getting into all kinds of adjectives of what kind of a Presbyterian I am. I'm a Bible-believing Presbyterian. I'm a conservative Presbyterian. I'm an evangelical Presbyterian. I'm a covenantal Presbyterian. I'm a confessional Presbyterian. I'm a reformed Presbyterian. You know, we use all kinds of labels because of the state of the church today and all of the difficulty and ambiguity of so many of the labels that we use. I saw a study this past week done by Gordon-Conwell Seminary that estimated that there are about 41,000 denominations in the world today. I knew it was a lot, but that number still boggled my mind. 41,000 Christian denominations in the world today. You can't blame an outside observer for being confused by what it means to be a Christian 
Or who is a Christian? Or what does a Christian believe? And how does this square with what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, speaking of the church of Jesus Christ, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. How do you put that together with 41,000 different Christian denominations? We're going to be looking this morning at the first New Testament church split. I say New Testament church because the Old Testament church split a lot. But the New Testament church, when you think of those who are following Jesus Christ as he's building the foundation of his church, here in John chapter 6, we have the first New Testament church split. I found it somewhat amusing that the account of the first church split is found in John 6.66. I don't know if there's any <laughs> intended relevance to that or not. I started to try to figure out if there's some spiritual impact to that, but then I realized that those numbers were put in there, the chapters and verses were put in there by medieval monks, and so they aren't inspired. But John 6.66 says this, After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. From an earthly perspective, I'm sure this appeared to be a devastating blow to this new movement that Jesus Christ himself called the kingdom of God. But that's not how we look at things, is it? We don't look at things the way the world looks at them. We don't measure success by numbers, do we? And if you look at things biblically, if you look at things from a spiritual perspective, you quickly find out that not all splits in the church are bad. Not all loss of professing members of the church is a bad thing. In seminary, we used to joke about what we called Scottish revivals. And that's as we looked at the history of the Presbyterian Church, we realized that many times the church got better and stronger when disgruntled members left, as opposed to adding bunches of new ones. Jesus told his disciples while he was here on earth that when he came the first time, in that first coming to earth, he did not come to bring peace on earth. That would come much later. The first time he came to earth, it says he came to bring division. And he said that division would be between father and son, mother and daughter, and sometimes, sadly, between congregation member and congregation member. We come today to the end of John chapter 6, and we're asking the question, in what way can it be good for the church to divide? In what way can it be a part of the plan of God For the church to divide. While we are still living as sinners in a fallen world, division in the church is inevitable. And so the question isn't how do we avoid division in the church? The question is, what kinds of things should we divide over? This chapter began with Jesus feeding thousands upon thousands of his followers with just a few loaves of bread, pieces of bread, And a few fish. 
and the people. And at that point, as we said, the movement from an earthly perspective was probably as big as it ever ever got. He was immensely popular. And John summarizes this by telling us in verse 15 that these people were so excited about this power that Jesus had and the, the power of his teaching that they wanted to take him to Jerusalem by force, if necessary, and make him king, proclaim him to be the messianic king who would finally throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire and free up the nation of Israel to be the visible kingdom of God on earth. Interestingly, we saw that Jesus responded to that popular movement by hiding himself, going off to the hills to hide himself from the crowds. They stalked him, they found him, and when they found him, the crowds asked him about what he was doing, and basically he discouraged the movement. He questioned their motivations for following him. And he enters into this what we call the discourse on the bread of life. He begins to tell these professing followers, people who are flocking after him, what it means to come to him. And he does it in terms of the phrase, I am the bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is a crowd that wanted daily bread. They wanted loaves and fishes every day. They wanted even the manna from heaven. But when Jesus begins to describe for them what it means that he is the only true bread of life and what it means for a follower to really accept him and receive him as the bread of life, they begin to go away and reject him. This is what I'm talking about. If In order to understand the power of God, in order to see the hand of God, Moving in the world today through his people, we need to redefine what we call the church, the true church. What are the marks of the true disciples of Jesus Christ? And what we're going to see here in this last portion of John chapter 6 is that the true church is going to be known by at least three marks. Historically, we've talked about four marks of the church. Mark Dever is a popular author that many of us enjoy reading, and he talks about nine marks of a true and healthy church. The three I'm talking about are included in Mark Dever's nine, and they're included in the historic understanding of the four marks of the church. These are the marks of the church that are foundational to all the other marks of the church. It's not an exhaustive list of what you would look for in a true church, but here's the foundation. The first mark that Jesus brings before the people, the mark of those who truly follow him, who truly feed upon him as the bread of life, is that the church, the true church, holds to the offense of the gospel. The true church holds to the offense of the gospel. Look at verse 60. The people are giving their response to all this teaching that Jesus has given about him being the bread of life by saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, we have just having gone through this chapter, there's a sense of which, yeah, this is hard to understand, but that's not what they meant. The word hard here in the original language doesn't mean difficult to understand. What it means is this is a severe teaching. This is a hard teaching, a harsh teaching in that sense of the word. It's hard to stomach what you're saying, Jesus. 
And what they're saying implies that in their attitude, they're rejecting what he's teaching. You can be sure of this because look at how Jesus responds to their statement. When they say this is a hard or a harsh teaching, he says to them, do you take offense at this? The word offense there, it's a great word in the original Greek. It's a word we literally transliterated. We get the word scandal from. Are you scandalized by this? I looked up the word scandalize. Literally, it means to shock or horrify by something considered immoral or improper. To shock or horrify by something considered immoral or improper. So what was it about what Jesus has been saying to this massive crowd? What was it that shocked and horrified them? Well, if we look carefully back through those verses, what we're going to see is there's three declarations that Jesus either implies or states very directly that these people, these disciples, are calling now hard, severe, difficult-to-stomach teaching that ultimately will lead to the rejection of him. The first one is that he claimed that he had come down from heaven. They objected to the fact that Jesus claimed in his teaching that he had come down from heaven. Look at verse 33. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then look at verse 41 where the, the, the Jews among, and again, there's three different crowds he's talking to. He's got the, the, the crowds that came for the bread and the fish that are still lingering around him. Not the whole, probably 15,000 plus, but a, a good portion of those people. Then you have the Jewish leadership sprinkled in among that crowd. And then you have the 12 and the closest dis- disciples of Jesus. And so here it says the Jews, probably referring to the Jewish leaders, grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? They're offended by the implications of what he's saying. And what are those implications? That his conception and birth in Bethlehem What's not the beginning of his existence? That he was pre-existent, that he existed before his earthly existence. They understood the implications of that from a Old Testament biblical worldview. That he was more than a man. Yes, he is man, but he's obviously claiming to be much more than a man. That is, he existed before his conception of birth. He, birth, he existed in the throne room of heaven in the very presence of God the Father. These are declarations that he's already made. And he goes so far as to say that God the Father has set his seal upon him and that he has been sent by God the Father on this mission. And even more than that, he alludes to the fact that in eternity past, Before he was born on earth, in this relationship with the Father, he is not just someone doing the will of the Father, but he is in an intimate, close, unique relationship with God the Father. Look at verse 46. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He claimed to have a unique knowledge and relationship with God the Father. You don't have the full orb teaching of the Trinity here, but... Boy, Jesus is giving an awful lot of it here in John chapter 6. That he was equal with God the Father, the eternal Son of God. 
And so when these people object to this, notice even in the passage we read today, Jesus doesn't soften the message. In verse 62, he says, if you're offended by that, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, I'm going back to the Father. I will take the throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. If you think that you're, if you're offended by me saying, I came from there, wait until you see me go back. And so that was the first thing that offended them, that he had come down from heaven. The second thing that offended the crowds is that he claimed that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have life. Now, that's a hard teaching, but that's clearly what Jesus says. Look again at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, we looked at this the last time we were together, and we said he's obviously not talking about cannibalism here. As always is the case in the book of John, the people take him too literally initially. He's speaking metaphorically about two things, and we talked about this last time. There's two crucial teachings in what he's saying here. First of all, he's pointing to the cross that he is about to go to. He's pointing to the ultimate act of service and obedience to the will of the God of the Father that he's about to accomplish at the cross. He's talking about what we today, in theological circles... Bear with me, I'm going to use some theological language we use in theological circles. He's talking about the penal, substitutionary, atoning death that he's about to carry out on the cross. I use those three words because those are three important words today because there are people who call themselves evangelical, Bible-believing Christians who are denying the essential teaching of those three words. First of all, that his death on the cross was penal. In other words, it was the bearing of just punishment. As he hung on the cross, he was punished for sin. But he knew no sin, never sinned. It wasn't his own sin that he was punished for. And that's why it's a substitutionary death on the cross that he suffered. He bore the wrath and punishment that others deserved. As we know from the gospel, those who put their faith in him. And it was an atoning sacrifice. In other words, it was the demand of God that the, the... the wages of sin is death, that the soul who sins shall die, and that blood must be shed if sin is committed, and Christ shed his blood as a substitute bearing the wrath and punishment of God the Father. That's why Jesus died on the cross, and that's what he's alluding to. He says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He doesn't mean literally. You must put your faith and your hope in that penal, substitutionary, atoning death of Christ on the cross. That's what he's alluding to. Now, I admit to you that none of the disciples, including The twelve fully understood this when he said it here. He's speaking in metaphors, in pictures that will only become more and more clear as he gets closer to the cross and then comes into absolute clarity after the cross and the resurrection. But he is alluding to it here. And even those who, you know, none of the, even though none of the disciples fully understood it, What you can begin to see here is that the unbelieving disciples, those who are following Jesus for the wrong reasons, begin to be repelled by that message. There's a sense of what Jesus is communicating here that they begin to reject because they'll have none of it. And the second point that Jesus is alluding to, beyond that atoning death on the cross, is that 
What saves then a sinner like you and me is an all-consuming faith that he uses this very visual graphic picture to, to display before us, which is that we feed upon him, that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. In other words, we absorb Christ in a very real sense of the word, spiritually speaking. He's talking about a radical faith. By radical, I don't mean somebody that looks weird and wears funny clothes. I'm talking about a radical faith. The word radical means to the root, to the very root of who you are. You believe in Christ and you trust in him. It's a faith that's not just a merely intellectual assent to a historic creed, but a faith that transforms a faith that is involved that involves complete trust and surrender and daily dependence upon the crucified and risen savior Jesus made this clear in verse 56 when he said whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him that's what it means to feed upon Christ by faith it means to abide in him in John 15, we'll talk about what it means to abide in Christ. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's not just some label you add to a long list of labels of how you describe yourself. It's an all-encompassing, to the very root of who you are, surrender and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. In the men's group, we've begun studying a book on discipleship, and we had a great discussion this past Tuesday about what it means to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is much more than just adding another social activity to your calendar. It means much more than showing up at church for a couple hours on Sunday morning. It means much more than adding your name to a membership list. It's an all-transforming faith. And that's what, you men in the group, I highly recommend you begin coming to our Tuesday morning, 6.30, men's study. Because there we're studying what this means. What does it mean to have that kind of a radical commitment and relationship with Christ? I saw a great tweet from a pastor that I follow on Twitter named Scotty Smith. Scotty Smith said, Mine was the Jesus is my co-pilot generation. I'm glad to know him now as the whole plain sky journey and destination. I think that well summarizes what Jesus is getting at here. They're offended that Jesus claimed to come down from the right hand of God the Father, and they were offended that his mission in coming was to offer up his flesh and blood that we might feed upon him by faith and find forgiveness and life in him. And then thirdly, I think the third thing, and this one's not quite as obvious, but it's clearly implied, they were offended that Jesus had told them that they were totally incapable of coming to him by their own will or efforts. He said in verse 44, and he repeated this in a couple of different ways, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what he's underlining there is that this is all by grace. None of us in a moment of spiritual inspiration, goes searching for Christ and finds him. That in our natural state, as Paul would say later, we are dead in transgressions and sins. No one seeks after God. The only reason any of us comes and has that kind of radical 
life-transforming faith is because the Father draws him by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is all of grace. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Going back to the question, what scandalized, what horrified and shocked these followers who were flocking to Jesus, what shocked them? It was the gospel, pure and simple. A lot of the, the word gospel, again, has gotten so fuzzy these days, but it's this gospel that offended them, that drove them away ultimately. The message that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and that he was crucified to bear God's wrath in our place and that we live only by feeding upon him with a God-given faith. Now we know that even the true disciples struggled to understand this and accept it. Peter, when Jesus said that he must suffer and die and on the third day be raised from the dead, remember how Peter responded to that. He said, by no means, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him for his lack of faith. But Peter was restored. And Peter, one day later, would call Jesus the crucified Christ and risen Christ, the cornerstone of the church and of the kingdom of God, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, it's that same word, scandal. A scandalous rock. The foundation for the church, but a stumbling block. For those who can't accept the true gospel. All of the, what I'm talking about, good splits, and I don't know if that phrase bothers you at all, but all of the good divisions and all the good splits in the history of the church, the good ones, have been about the gospel. About who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God and what he came to do. What was the purpose of his coming? What was the purpose of his death? All the good splits in the history of the church have been over that issue, which is what the gospel summarizes. The true church isn't really divided over worship styles. The true church isn't really divided over the issue of baptism, interpretations of baptism, or interpretations of church government, or interpretations of spiritual gifts, or prophecy. Those things don't really divide the true church of Jesus Christ. Those are what I would call superficial divisions. They're painful, they're difficult, we wrestle with them. But the only real divisions from God's perspective is between those who hold to the gospel and those who don't. And make no mistake of it, there is much of the visible church today that is ashamed of the gospel and ultimately rejecting the gospel. There are churches all around us who bear the label Christian or Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist, who deny the essential doctrines that make up this gospel that Jesus is declaring here. And I would not, I came from a church like that, I grew up in a church like that, and I will never hesitate to say that churches like that should stop lying and take the name Christian off their, off their signs and off their literature. And pick a name for whatever religion they're, calling, they, they're adhering to. But it's not Christianity because it's not built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And true revival will not come to the church until we are all willing to acknowledge that. Because the true church, the invisible church, as God sees it, is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But there are a lot of churches going by the name of evangelical and conservative today that are also ashamed of the biblical gospel that Christ preaches here. Just came from our, denom- our annual denom- denominational meetings in Greenville, South Carolina. And one of the things that we were discussing is one of the latest, newest, most innovative uh, um, attacks upon the gospel. And it's happening among people churches, denominations, and missionaries that wear the label evangelical or biblical or Christian. It's called, if you've heard of it, it's called the insider movement. It happens among missionaries to Muslim countries. I'm just going to pull out one issue. It's a very complex debate, covers a lot of issues. But just one example of what's going on in these missionaries who call themselves Bible-believing, gospel-preaching missionaries is that they are changing translations of Scripture that are used among Muslim countries, among Muslim peoples. They are taking out titles for the name for Christ. When it talks about Christ, they're taking out titles such as the Son of God. Why? Because Muslims are highly offended by the teaching of Scripture that Jesus is the eternal Son of God the second person of the Trinity. Jesus has already made it clear here in John chapter 6, that's essential to the gospel. If you compromise that, if you delete that, if you cover that over, if you hide that, you are compromising the gospel. We need to be diligent. It's very difficult in this day with all these different labels and all these different movements But we always measure the true church by its adherence to this gospel, the one Jesus preaches in John chapter 6, that he is the Son of God who died and bore the wrath of God in our place to cover our sin and reconcile us to our holy, creator, loving God. That's the gospel. That brings me to the second and third marks, and don't worry, we're much more than just halfway through the sermon here. (laughs) Because the second and third marks really go together, and I can handle this one fairly quickly. The second and third marks of the true church, as Jesus gives it here in John chapter 6, is the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Where the gospel is preached and the Word of God is upheld and the Spirit is at work, The true church prospers. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The church is planted. The church grows. The church spreads by the power of the word and the power of the Spirit working together. You only need two things to plant and grow healthy Vibrant, true churches, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And both of those are given by God that we might see Christ crucified and risen again and worship and know and feed upon him. We feed upon Christ by consuming his word with a spirit-given hunger. And that's how the church grows and flourishes. And this is what we see at the end of chapter 6. Is the remnant of true disciples, the others have all turned away, offended by Christ's teaching that he is the Son of God who died for sinners. And this remnant of true disciples that are still left at Jesus' side, Jesus turns to them in verse 67, he says, do you want to go away as well? And when you read that verse, don't ever read that with a kind of a 
pitiful, pleading voice behind it. Jesus isn't saying to those disciples standing, he's not saying, you don't want to go too, do you? You know, it's, it's not this kind of pleading, uh-oh, poor pitiful me, everybody's departing. I guarantee you that Jesus is never surprised when people depart from him. He's known it before the foundation of the world. And he's never discouraged when his opinion, when the opinion polls and popularity polls turn against him. He's never discouraged when he only has a tiny, small, ostracized, persecuted church representing him. Because all this happens according to his plan. So when he turns to these disciples and he says, you don't want to, you, do you want to go away as well? He's actually giving them a forceful challenge. He's saying essentially the same thing that Joshua said to the people of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you go with them? Or will you continue to feed upon me by faith? And Peter speaks up as the spokesman for the true church. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. 